0: Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com/adfree-lifestyle to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of acast shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads. The 80s Rewind Show podcast.
1: It's time, it's time to bring you yet another amazing episode. And now, welcome your host, Rob, the face for Radio Burgess. Enjoy the show. Hello, hello,
0: it's the one Show podcast with me, Rob, the face for Radio Burgess. Welcome along to the podcast, and I'm so glad you're here to join me today. Uh, Thank you for joining me. Um, I love the eights as much as you do, clearly, that's why you're here. So do me a favour, if you can, like and subscribe, and if you can share the love about the show to your friends and your family and your neighbour, your postman. And anybody you meet, that'd be absolutely wonderful. Thanks, I really appreciate it. In advance, I know you're gonna do it for me, it's brilliant. I spoke to a fantastic guest today, a wonderful, wonderful man. Uh, Jack Hughes from the band Wang Chung, who had hits with uh, Don't Let Go, Dance All Days, and Everybody Have Fun Tonight, as well as many, many more. Uh, We spoke about his early days um, starting a band and playing guitar, and we spoke about Wang Chung supporting the cars, and as well as that, his solo work. I've been really lucky with the 80s Rewind show to meet such amazing people and lovely people. And Jack is one of those people that is just absolutely lovely. I had an amazing morning with him talking about music and things we loved. And uh, we had a lot in common. We're both Beatles fans, evidently. <laughs> um, but Jack could not be nicer and more accommodating. So thank you, Jack, for your time. Anyway, I hope you enjoy the podcast. And don't forget, like and subscribe. And, uh, well, let's just get to it. So... Um, where did it all start for you? Where where, did, where was the genesis of music that made you go, this is what I want to do? Was it an album? Was it a film? Was it an experience? What was the first thing you... It was the Beatles. And uh, it was
1: hearing Please Please Me on the radio. And I was only like seven years old, maybe eight years old. But um, I, I heard that music and I've told this story many times before, but I was I remember it. I was in the kitchen with my mum and she was doing the washing up and stuff and please, please me came on the radio and I th- it just caught my ear, you know, and she was listening to it and it's got that chorus that goes, come on, come on, come on, come on. And she went, oh, come on then and sort of like turned it off, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I just sort of thought, this is interesting because this is like, she doesn't like it and I really like it, you know. Um, so it sort of lodged and then I think I probably saw them on the raw Variety performance mm. soon after that and uh yeah, and and I think certainly from there, uh, that was what I wanted to do. And you know, my dad was a musician; he played saxophone, so there was music in the house and stuff. But it was jazz, predominantly sort of big band jazz, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And um, so it was there, and I, you know, I didn't really. Well, that's it's not true to say I didn't like it. I did like some of the records that he played, some of the Dave Brubeck and mm-hmm. Desmond stuff. But I was it was too I was too young to get it at all. Do you know what I mean? But the, obviously the Beatles, I was. I was yeah. still young, but it was, but I really did get it. And I wanted to learn guitar. My dad very kindly bought me a guitar, like a very basic acoustic, you know, and insisted that I had proper lessons. That was the sort of deal. If I was going to learn guitar, I had to have proper lessons. So I went to this, what seemed to be an old lady, but she was probably like well, certainly younger than I am now. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she, she taught me to read music and play guitar in a fairly un- restricted sort of way and otherwise I wasn't having to play classical guitar in that strange way that you have to see right. with classical guitar. So I could put it on my you know right leg bob dylan style and <laughs> strum
0: away and she helped me with figuring out chords and stuff you know. So it was good. So was the guitar at the time being young was that, was that your sort of um channel for getting expression was yeah, was it different it was. You- I started writing songs probably when I was 11 12 I remember being in a band at school.
1: And writing the band was called the Footprints, and uh, and I wrote a song called Through and Through. I, if and I sort of wrote, I'm trying to think. Did I write the lyrics? I think I did actually write the music and lyrics, and. Uh, you
0: I can sort of remember the first section of it. Uh, it, wasn't, you know, it wasn't terrible. <laughs> <laughs> so well, the Beatles were obviously a huge influence on you. What did you feel the movement of, of the the uh, the Zeitgeist as well when after that performance? Was it your friends were talking about it as well? Yeah. And that, that reinforced your
1: Yeah. My best friend Bill, you know, he started having guitar lessons with me. And uh Yeah, it was it was very central in the culture. You know, it's not like now where music is a sort of add-on or What is it? uh, Oral cheesecake, as uh, Stephen Pinker calls it. You know, it it was like fundamental, and it was, in a sense, politically as well. In this, you know, because, you know, when the Queen wanted to give them MBEs, and you know, Harold Wilson wanted to be photographed with them, it was the first time, in a way, that working class kids became desirable to the establishment. Mm. You know, and I don't think that's the case anymore. Yeah, (laughs) I can't imagine the Queen wanted to be photographed with. Tom York, even.
0: Do you know what I mean? (laughs) I suppose it gave working class kids a reachable goal as well at that point. It did, yeah. Yeah. It was that and football, you know, with the ways out in a sense, you know.
1: But it was also, um, yeah, I I think it was a sort of window to a whole different way of looking at life, really, which was the sort of the. what's his name? David Lynch. We call it the, the art life. Right. Yeah. 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 Do you have a like a Beatles period? Is it early Beatles or late Beatles? I suppose done? the later period I, I I still love, you know, I mean, but some of the early stuff is great too. You know, I was working on things we said today a little while ago. Uh, sometimes I get slightly obsessed with songs and uh, I did this gig where they wanted me to uh, sort of do a little acoustic gig um, and talk about the songs that had, formed me as it were that made me <clears throat> and i chose things we said today as the beatles song because it's so well crafted yeah so i wanted to learn how to play it so i could show how the back end of the middle eight dovetails into the front of the chorus and yeah all these and not that technical you know but things that make <laughs> you sort of think all oh, right yeah it is this is a whole very sophisticated way or well, not even sophisticated so it's a very elegant way of songwriting
0: you know? yeah. Did, yeah did it make you um deconstruct your own writing in a sense when you looked at it uh, does it make you sort of think you know I could yeah, have written differently if I'd, if I'd known this but I was 11 or. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they have that story, don't they, about going across town
1: to find the palooka could play B7. <laughs> so I suppose there was a bit of that going on. <laughs> but by the time I was playing in bands and stuff, uh, this, this was around the let it be period, but also when I was into the cream and, and starting to get into prog bands as well. You know? Right. So the musical horizons were actually pretty high, you know. Yeah. Uh, so those guitar lessons that I'd had for. Four years or so, you know, um, stood me in pretty good stead to try and figure out what was happening on roundabout by yes or yeah. whatever. You know,
0: <laughs> I mean, there's, it's interesting. The Beatles didn't have any lessons really at all, and then they wrote no. these amazing songs without any lessons. And no. it, but lessons or no lessons, everyone writes brilliant songs if they're brilliant songwriters, don't they? It's, exactly. It's really yeah. strange. Yeah. It doesn't matter which way you path you take, as long as the songs. It's true. If yeah. a song sounds great on acoustic guitar, it's a good song, isn't it? Oh. The, the adage joy was here, which I think is right. No, I. I did a bit of teaching songwriting here in Canterbury. Oh, you did?
1: At um, Christchurch University, yeah. I did it for a few years. And um, <clears throat> I used to preface the class saying to the students, you know, I can't teach you how to write songs, but I can sort of give you a methodology, uh, which is basically have a way of writing down lyric ideas and musical ideas that instantly come to you, you know, as opposed yeah. to thinking, oh, i remember that, and write it down in the morning. Sort of <laughs> thing, you know? And it's kind of being, you know, switched on all the time, really, or to observe what's going on around you, you know. Um, but, yeah, I, it was interesting how there were certain people there uh, who would just naturally yeah right songs they just, just understood the language they understood the kind of emotional relationship between the lyrics and the words and the melody and the harmony and stuff it was just all there and there were others who really struggled you know with, with those relationships you know yeah and um. and then in a sense the more they thought about it the worse it got <laughs> you know on that respect <laughs> but I do think you know when they sort of say everybody's got a song inside them I do think everybody does actually you know yeah and the experience of trying to write a song at the very least gives you a lot of respect for people who can do it.
0: You know? Yeah, yeah. Is, does that happen to yourself? Are you walking down the road and you think, oh, oh a yeah. lyric and you, you have to write it down? You, do you put it in your phone? Do you put yeah. a piece of paper? I sing, sing it into
1: my phone these days. Oh, yeah. my, my phone has a lot of recordings of me going... <laughs> 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 so your phone's just the whole demo, basically. It is. It it's a is. demo. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. And sometimes the songs come complete almost. Do you know what I mean, you just sort of sit down and play them right out, you know, and... Uh, and other times you're tinkering away, you know. So on my latest uh, solo album, Electroacoustic Works, um, we got to work together, that first track, that riff I sort of thought of, you know, probably 10 years ago sort of thing. And Wow. Uh, it, was a, it was a while ago, but I was just came up with this sort of, the kind of feel for the lyrics. And I was thinking, yeah, that riff, that may, might fit. And it, and it kind of did. You know, so. <laughs> so don't chuck any away. That's Never throw anything away. Yeah, I record everything, you know, and I, I think it's, I think any artist, you know, when you walk into a visual artist's studio and there's crap everywhere, isn't there? Do you yeah. know, all the magazines and all the stuff they collect and keep,
0: you know, for reference. Uh, so it's the same with musicians. You know. <laughs> so one of the first bands I saw... You, you worked for was, was it uh, Scab Harry was that one, they, one of your early bands <laughs> it was yeah and what sort of band was it was it a, like a, it was a three-piece I think in the
1: it was so it was me on I think I was playing guitar and singing Um uh, uh my mate Bill still with me on bass Nigel Robinson was the drummer and I think that was the core of the band really uh that sort of three-piece um so what would have been contemporary I, I guess it was a sort of hangover from The Cream, really, who I never quite got over <laughs> as being a model for what a band should should be, you know, and, and we were like proggy, you know, it was proggy stuff. In fact, uh, the brother of Nigel, Ian, uh, did make recordings of us and he recently sent me a CD of all sorts of stuff. Wow. What was I, it
0: like? Was it was it better than you thought? Was it worse? It's ambitious, <laughs> you, you know, so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the best word, I think. It's <laughs> and then, was it with um, Scab, how you... You supported Vinegar Joe? That I really don't recall, actually, but quite possibly. When was that? Uh, that would have been uh, early 70s. Yeah.
1: If, yeah, if I was supporting anybody, it would have been with that band, with Scabary. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean,
0: because they're one of the greatest bands that never really broke through. Okay. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Vinigal, yeah. A I do remember the name, but I can't remember the band particularly. It was Elkie yeah. Brooks okay. and Robert Palmer. Uh, and then after that, was it the Intellectuals? Was that your band following? Well, I think, uh, so after Scabary, that was a school band.
1: basically. Right, right, right. So, uh, so then I went to university and by the time I was at university, I was interested in classical music. I suppose, because you couldn't study jazz and rock like you can now. So a music degree meant music, you know, um, which was considered at the time, you know, classical music. And and everything else was, you know, pop music especially was really considered trash. And even film music was a joke for people then, you know. I find it very interesting how now film music is regarded as, well, that's classical music which it really isn't, yeah. <laughs> it's orchestral music, you know. Um, but it ain't classical, that's for sure. Um, and that's not a criticism, it's just like, it, it, you don't mix those two things up, I don't think, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, we could spend the rest of the morning talking about that, actually.
0: Because <laughs> it's amazing how you can buy, you know, film soundtrack separately, the orchestral yeah, versions. Yeah. This, and they sell just as well now. Is they it, do, it's yeah. got Danny Elfman's name on it. Yeah, yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. No, absolutely. And John Williams, everyone's has oh, Classical music, you know. <laughs> and even uh, computer games. You know, on, on Radio Three, which I listened to a lot on Saturday afternoons for a while, they had a you know a program that talked about computer gaming music mm-hmm. uh, as you know a legitimate realm of um, self expression, which it certainly is. That you know, yeah. Um, but uh, I guess the big difference for me is you know when you've got music. That's underpinning a narrative accompanying it in a sense that's a very different position from like a symphony, which is a bit of abstract music which may well have narrative in it, but it's it's a different kind of approach to where the music sits, you know yeah, and uh, th- those are important distinctions i think
0: yeah, so it at this point in your life, if it was classical or pop, which one would you go for? Like if I put them down and said, pick one. We'll in try. a sort of desert island kind yeah, of yeah. Way. I, I suppose it
1: would be classical, you know, which isn't to say I don't listen to a lot of pop music, you know. Uh, yeah. I, I do. I'm still, you know, interested in, you know, hearing new bands and stuff and come across stuff all the time, which is interesting. You know, most recently the, the Floating Points album um, with uh, Ferris Sanders and the London Symphony Orchestra. I guess it's hard, well... It's file under jazz. They file it under, you know. But what I love about it is that it's kind of unclassifiable, you know. Yeah. But, but it's, uh, it was uh, out in 2020, I think. It's a masterpiece. Is it? Like, is it? really amazing, yeah.
0: So if people going into that sort of music, would that be your go-to album at the moment, would you say? Uh,
1: f- right now, it would, yeah. Although I can't think of many people who would come back to me and go, like, oh, yeah, it's brilliant, because it's got uh, saxophone, improvised saxophone right. all over it, which a lot of people it seems to bother modern the modern sensibility that somebody's just kind of meandering their way through it <clears throat> i love that person but uh p- people seem to want to just have something more structured is
0: there yeah. kind of snobbery involved it sounds as like the
1: kind of that snobbery i think it's a taste thing you know uh, i think you know jazz is a four-letter word <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of people are offended by it you know well, offended it's too strong a word but they just don't like it, like the sensibility of it, you know. Yeah, and I get that. I didn't, you know, for many, many years. I didn't uh, really buy jazz albums and stuff, you know. And uh, I, was, I was thinking recently about you know uh, Peter Wolf, who produced Everybody Have Fun Tonight. You know, he joined uh, Frank Zappa's band, right? And uh, and Frank. Uh, had musicians that were, you were either in Miles Davis's band or Frank Zappa's band if you were one of those kind of high powered, trained in Berkeley type musicians in the States, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, I remember people, talk, uh, Peter talking to me about Miles, and I was like, don't really know his, his work, you know, which I didn't in the 80s, you know. And Peter said, oh, God, you know, that's <laughs> Took me out in his car and we drove around, you know, wherever we were, like West Hollywood or something, and uh, <laughs> listening to Nefertiti. And I sort of thought, oh, yeah, this is pretty good. And I bought the album and I liked it. But yeah. it wasn't until the 90s when I was working with Chris Hughes, who played me Kind of Blue, uh, which is That's the great, a in a sense the classic Miles album, or yeah. int- entry level Miles album, uh, that it suddenly dawned on me what was going on, and I don't know whether you have this, but sometimes something that was really pretty opaque to you suddenly illuminates and yeah. becomes fascinating. And so I spent you know a lot of time then getting myself acquainted with that sort of jazz, the the classic yeah. jazz stuff, you know.
0: For me, it was um, Led Zeppelin. The first okay, time. when I heard Led Zeppelin the first time, I just thought, "Oh, this is, I can't get my head around this." Interesting. Yeah. And um, Billy Connolly says, "You either get it or you don't." I yeah. think I think that's a great way of looking at things, especially yeah. when you get older as well. Yeah. And uh, I put the first album. I thought this is just racket yeah. to a degree. Yeah. And I do remember years, feeling that myself. Yeah, actually. Yeah, and then yeah, 15 yeah. years later, I was like, "This is just fantastic and just mind blowing." <laughs> it's just crazy how it turns around that way. Where you, I don't know, do you think it's like as you get older, your taste change, or do you just think you become more aware of different music that it makes it more acceptable do you think it's it's an interesting question you know i
1: mean there is this ridiculous thing that you read you know saying your music taste is formed by the time you're 20 or something yeah it's crap i think um so i think it's i don't know i think some people use music a bit like a well i think people who am i to talk about people but i observe over the years you know people using art music like a mirror so it has to reflect them yeah. Back, back to themselves in some way or other, you know. And I think as you get older, maybe that lessens and you start to hear music as it is, and then you go to it and, yeah. and sort of absorb it into yourself, you know. So it depends whether it's a sort of um, a sort of narcissistic process where you just want it to be like you, you know, or whether it's a sort of exploratory process where you want to kind of expand your thinking and, and as you're thinking, expand these bands or musicians or whatever it might be, uh, come into your orbit you know yeah and then you get into it you
0: know. and maybe you get more analytical as you get older as well about you know yeah like you said about the songwriting you get a bit more sort of mm-hmm. you i don't know maybe people start to understand music on a level they don't understand why they understand it yeah it makes any sense yeah well maybe even the
1: whole notion of understanding music is inflating what you're doing or really, you know because it's like uh, i remember there's that there's that old thing, isn't there you know there's 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 just good and bad music there's there's no sort of genre yeah. definitions you know jazz classical rock um, you know whatever um but miles sort of slightly it's attributed to him anyway the uh, slightly refined it by saying you know there's just music that interests me and music that doesn't you know yeah. and i think uh that and again it, you know some people i think are just happy for music to be in the background while they're getting ready for a club or something like that and then it's got to be a certain sort of mood and it's got to with them where they are. Yeah. Other people want to sit and listen to the music and, and find out about it and see where it's going, you know. And
0: there, there are a lot of people like that, I think. You know, yeah. and,
1: uh, and that's that's the difference, maybe. You
0: know? I had a, a sort of similar thing where I, the power of music frightened me at one point. Mm-hmm. And I was um, I was DJing in a club for many years yeah. and I was playing a dance classic and I, I think I had seven 800 in the room, something like that. It was quite busy. And um, I remember playing this song and I said, right, and the chorus, now sing. And this... They all sung exactly at the same time, mm-hmm. and uh, this whole wall of sound just hit me, like, yeah. like, and I was like, "Oh, this is scary." Yes, <laughs> it's either you embrace this power, yep. or you, you get frightened but, And I was terrified for a minute, and, yes. like, because I just thought anything can happen, mm. but nothing happened. Everyone was having a great time, and they had the hands of the air and stuff. But you you understand the power of if you get the right sort of emotion going yeah. with music, you can do anything with it. And when you see. um sort of or you read historical riots at rock concerts and stuff like that i totally understood it in that one second mm-hmm. i like i get how you could just say you know smash the place up and people will do it mm. because everyone's just in the same place at the same time and the same mindset it's a very interesting phenomena it is yeah 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 that sort of mass hysteria isn't it really <laughs> it's, it's crazy yeah. Yeah. yeah but it's a very positive
1: thing as well i think you know the 100%. experience of being in a crowd at a gig where you're all in the same moment with the same emotion in a sense. You yeah. Know, and uh, and it's being transmitted at you for, by another human being yeah.
0: rather than a film or whatever. You know? That's why I think the, the live experience over the two years of COVID has been really, I've missed that so much yeah. because, you know, seeing seen lots of bands and... Just being in the room with strangers that put their arms around you and all hello mate. yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, oh, so you know this person is your best friend for the next two hours. You know? yeah, 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 yeah. That doesn't happen so much with the
1: Barbican, but
0: <laughs> so <laughs> so after that, was it fifty-seven men you was in with Glen Gregory yeah. from Heaven Seventy? What sort of band was that? Was that was that sort of a prog band again? Was that an, an industrial band? It was more band? kind of funky, you know. I guess
1: you know. So I met Nick when I left university, uh, having decided that being a classical composer was probably a little impractical (laughs) and um so nick you know had this band the intellectuals which i joined effectively through this the legendary audition you know up in north london and um uh yeah and the the pattern in those days was so you form the band you rehearse um i think we did some demos which you send to the record companies and then you were on this sort of circuit of pubs on the outskirts of London, you know. Mm. Uh, I guess Camden Town was the sort of the most central area that you would play. And sometimes we did gigs at the Marquee, or um, there was a place in mm. Victoria called um, The Venue, I think, which was a popular place at the time. Um, that probably was a little later that, that we did those places. But, um, but yeah, you were sort of on this thing and the record company guys would come and hear you because they were drinking these pubs, you know. And then they'd sort of sign you or they wouldn't you know and with the intellectuals they didn't sign us you know so we thought "Mm, maybe it's me and nick sort of singing and stuff we were crap singers (laughs) in fact we were pretty awful all the way around really so uh we thought you know get glenn in he's a bit like brian ferry a bit kind of like suave and attractive you know and uh get uh lee in on bass i think i guess nick was still playing guitar at this point so lee gorman played bass and uh, we had a keyboard player, so me and Nick on guitars, I guess. So it was quite a big band. It felt like a, like 57 men, it was called that, <laughs> because it felt like there were 57 men, you know. Um, and Darren Costin was on drums, of course, by that time. Uh, so the same thing. Did some demos, interested in the demos, you know. Came to see us, not interested in the band. Wow. <laughs> you know, so um, the next time around, we sort of thought, okay, let's slim it right down. And, and I guess we sort of, there was... It was possibly breakup time at that point for me and Nick and Darren. But I said, look, let's, uh, you know, I'll sing, I'll play guitar. Nick, you need to play bass and Darren, you play drums. So we're like a little three piece, you know, and I guess the police were a sort of a a model at that time because they were massively successful. But I could see how touring will become practical and stuff within that format, you know. And um, yeah, and we did the demos, and we didn't do any gigs, and <laughs> got signed. <laughs> so they didn't actually see what they were letting. The so party. on record, you were fantastic, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so we yeah we signed to this little label called Rewind Records, wow. and uh, so they put out the first two singles that we ever did, and John Peel played one of them and uh, was fairly disparaging about it, I think. But nevertheless, he played it, and um, you know. And we built up we did more of these the sort of London gigs and started building up a sort of following. Um by that time a guy called Dave Bernand joined the band and, and that's where it became Huang Chung. Yeah H U A N nice. G. Yeah.
0: So was you signed to Astra at this point? It was, it
1: was Um Arista, yeah. It was Arista. So the, the Arista deal came out of us, yeah, from that process of having the little indie deal. Yeah. And uh, and we had a manager and he kind of talked Arista into Doing a, I think it was a two album or maybe it was a three album deal that we did with them, you know, wow. but always an option for them to get out of it if they wanted to. <laughs> get <out of> <laughs> yeah,
0: At that time, was you writing songs for uh, Points on a Curve at this bit? Was it sort of aiming towards that? Or was it?
1: Well, the Huang Chung album was our sort of live set, you know, and uh, when you talk about, you know, the songwriting on that album, I mean, we want to reissue that this year because it's the 40th anniversary of this Fantastic. year. Fantastic. Yeah. So, uh, in fact, I downloaded all the files for the for the multi tracks last night actually and wow um, it's really interesting to to hear it and it's a good record it's, for me it's got a you know a song like Tina that has got a lot of uh, my attempting to write a song that uses modern harmony but within a sort of rock yeah uh, context you know so it's uh, it's quite a strange sounding song you know uh, you could listen to it in some ways as a sort of prototype of dance all days so, yeah uh, which it, it sort of is you know but, um, if, if, uh, if you ever want me to talk you through the chords can, okay, and you'll be like, wow, they're pretty dissonant chords. You know? <laughs> and was it true David Geffen changed the name? Is yes. That right? Yeah. Wow. So when we signed, uh, so we did the Arister album, uh, at the end of that process, I wrote Dance All Days and, uh, Dance All Days was clearly a, a sort of hit song. There was a very different sense from people. When then they heard that track, you know, it's kind of suddenly our publishers wanted to invite us out for lunch and stuff, you know, and it's all like... we never met them before, really. <laughs> and uh, so... And then we did a version of Dance for Days with Tim Freeze Green. Tim right. Freeze Green was at that time working with Talk Talk. And right, was yeah, yeah. like, considered to be state-of-the-art, but also experimental. The sort of Nigel Godrich of his time, I suppose, you know. Uh, but the experience of working with him was tough, actually, because... It was it was kind of like he wanted to make the record, basically, and then have me sing on it. Yeah. And I didn't like what he did with it. I don't think any of us did, you know. Um,
0: so we, was it just going to be you just doing vocals and he was going to do all the music and stuff? Essentially. Yeah. By, in the 80s, you know, it was kind of going that way because you had drum machines and yeah. synths, and it started
1: to, that model of needing the band in the studio uh, to play stuff was no longer even desirable, really. It was like... So he was trying to get a much more quirky kind of pop thing out of it. And that version of Dance Days is going to be on the,
0: oh, oh, reissues, you know.
1: Um, and listening to it now, I sort of think, nah, this, this isn't good, you know. So anyway, we had this point where we recorded Dance for Days for Arista, and, um, but we got a new manager. And this new manager sort of said, you've got to get out of this Arista deal and sign to an American label because mm. this degree of musicality that you've got. And I don't see that in a sort of self-aggrandizing way. It's just like with the the music, quality that we were aiming at was different from you know the bands that got signed in this in this country yeah um so david essentially um got us out of the Arista deal you know which felt dangerous at the time in a way (laughs) because they were kind of like okay let's do a second album you know uh and we're willing to go with that and david was like no we want we want out of the deal and we want that recording of well you can keep that recording of dance with Days, but you know we we won't don't want you to apply the re-recording clause. To right. it. So they agree to all of these things, which in retrospect, I'm sure they regret. <laughs> or sort of maybe thought, oh wow, how did we do that? How did David talk us into this? You know? But David was a very good manager because <laughs> yeah. he could talk people into that stuff. So we were in the wilderness for a few weeks and but David had the confidence of a, a good manager to go to the States and he got us a deal office from Electra I think and from Geffen. And in the end we decided to go with Geffen.
0: I mean Geffen, what a label. That yeah. Just amazing. Mm, in those days
1: it was a very little label. You know, uh, yeah. in, they had Offices on Sunset Boulevard that were great, you know, one-story building, and just maybe I don't know, 10, 15 people working in that office, and we sort of knew them all, and they were all very experienced guys, and you felt like you were in sort of safe hands with them. I mean,
0: uh, when you look at his back catalogue, like Joni and the
1: Eagles, well, absolutely, and, yeah, and yeah, yeah, Jackson yeah. Brown, and yeah. His,
0: now he's like, a
1: central sort of guru figure in the in the music business from the early '70s on, really, as a manager first, and then as a label owner. And then obviously into DreamWorks.
0: I think he's stuff. um he's he's he started sort of unorthodox as well, isn't it, as a manager. And I think yeah. that suits bands yeah. like yourself at the time. They were yeah. kind of Well he know.
1: sort of got into he was into artists, I think, you know. That's right. So he wasn't into formula formulaizing things. Although No, I'd I'd say Geffen was a sort of maverick label, really, because you know, they sang Guns N' Roses and Nirvana when Grunge was, you know. Just a and nobody cl- wanted to into in its father's eyes. So yeah. Absolutely, nobody wanted those bands. You know, but he saw it, or rather, he gave license to his A&R guys to, to sign that stuff, and and then they would get behind it. That's the thing with American labels. I found once they made the decision to go with it, they really went with it and put yeah. money on the table. And whereas over here, you, know, you get signed to a label, but they don't put money into it. And they, is it kind of good luck, boys? You know, it is. Yeah, you sign yeah. it, and good luck, is, boys. Yeah, so, yeah. Like, so we put this out, you know, and, and if it goes to number one, then we'll. Think about giving you a
0: bit of money. Here, yeah, you know? boy, have a cigar, you are yeah. going to go far. <laughs> All of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think Floyd called it early, I think, on that one. <laughs> they got it right. Yeah. So you were recording the album with uh, Ross Callum and Chris Hughes. Yes, that's... who done Tears for Fears yep. and Adamant, to yep. Yep. I mean, amazing producers. They're one of the guys that made those 80s sounds. What was it like recording the album? Uh, great uh, oh. will be the headline. Uh, <laughs> and underneath it was a but, you know. <laughs> very
1: long-winded, you know. And that was partly to do with the technology. But also, I think, partly to do with the mindset. So the technology was very early drum machines, synthesising the Fairlight CMI. Yeah. um, Which the theory of it was, yeah, this instrument where you could put a sound into it and then play, you know, tune it to... Sort of equal temperament and play in any key. And, you know, the reality was that it was like very low sampling rate quality <laughs> and horrendous to get it to run in sync with the tape machine. There's no MIDI stuff. back then, was there? No. There was uh, you, basically the technology was the same that they used in movies to sync up pictures with soundtrack right so it was tested but it was it was not designed to be shuttling back and forth you know making a pop record sort of thing yeah. it was designed for a
0: sort of one off run through do you know what I mean and just line things up you know yeah. and what sort of producers were they were they very hands on were they sort of did they just let you experiment and then put their part in when they felt necessary or did they sort of Chris was pretty hands on yeah. yeah you know he was definitely
1: in control with with the Fairlight and, um, and very painstaking and meticulous uh and I think there was in those days, you know, having been in a world of where, you know, you've got your band in the studio, uh, drums are all mic'd up, a bit of screen around them, you know, bass. Well, like Let It Be, the Beatles in Let It Be, you know, they're all yeah. in the room together playing. So Huang Chang, a lot of that was recorded in that, in that way. Uh, and so you're reliant on the musicians to keep in time in tune you know and to and to perform <laughs> basically yeah. you know and i think once these machines came in especially doing the drum parts mm. there was this sense okay well that it's going to be in time because it's a machine you know? yeah and also it's not going to do fills all the time <laughs> because it's a machine you know <laughs> so, so it was low. like heaven on earth <laughs> really, <laughs> in some ways uh but on the other hand you have got this very sort of there's no life coming from it, you know. You yeah. Know, you have to sort of create that really. You know, that's sort all of Frankenstein. You have to put a few forty thousand volts through it sort of thing to try and get it to to have some energy, you know. Um was it easy to lock into the drum machines? Like, yeah, yeah. I mean I enjoyed it. You know, and there were all sorts of records that were made with drum machines at the time that we loved, you know. Yeah. So um, Dare the Human League album springs to mind as the first kind of truly I mean I know this German band's craft work and so on doing stuff but for me dare was the first like english good songs uh that that whole kind of feel for things that english bands had you know that was done entirely electronically and it
0: was at abbey road you were you were recording we were recording points on the curve at abbey road Uh, studio two studio Studio. two yeah yeah yeah,
1: that that big big room and we were there every day for i'd say i say nine months you know maybe it wasn't quite that long but it wasn't far short of it and the
0: whole album project took about a year to wow and all. did it did the abbey road because i know you're a beatles man We was talking Massive. before we were yes. talking earlier. yeah did the magic ever wear off for you being in that room or every day when you stepped through the doors you're like wow was it
1: there was you know making an album is a definitely a journey you know and that's it starts off frothy and great like all journeys do you know and then <laughs> there's that long plateau <laughs> slog of actually you know getting the hi-hat right
0: Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to Amazon.com slash Ad-Free Lifestyle to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads.
1: Right, or whatever it might be, you know, these little nuts and bolts that have to be great. And certainly the thinking with the album was that if every single ingredient was inverted commas perfect then the song will be perfect yeah. yeah and that it was now possible to make the perfect pop record you know yeah so i think we all had that aspiration but of course it's a ridiculous idea <laughs> you know and, and making great records is all about capturing moments and it, yeah. a certain sort of energy and stuff it took me a while to figure that out but, <laughs> but in Abbey know we no we were meticulous and uh I was saying earlier, you know, sort of doing vocals that Abbey Road for me. You know, we we did them in Studio Two. It would have probably been better to use Studio Three and somewhere yeah. a little
0: less. So you'd be so, on your own in this huge I room. This massive
1: room doing a yeah. vocal. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So you set up headphones, baffle in front of you, the mic, and everything's going into the control room, which was on effectively first floor level, and all you had was this window that you couldn't really see into it from that ground floor level. Yeah. And uh, you know, you do a vocal take. Uh, So you're hearing the track, hearing your vocal, and at the end of it, there's silence, sort of thing. So you speak into the mic, go, "How's that?" You know. (laughs) nothing, until they switch the talk back button on. And then when they do that, you can hear that everyone's laughing and someone's telling the story. And they go, yeah, it's great, do it again. You know, so, okay, do it again, you know, and after about the fourth time, your voice is starting to go, and they're like, yeah, starting to get there now. You know, it's like, you know, is anybody actually listening to these takes? they lunch. Because again, yeah. you know, these days, you know, you can do take after take after take and keep them all, you know, and yeah. then review it. But then you would do a take on a vocal track, and then you'd erase that track with the next take wow so you know and i would have this sense of like i nailed that line you know yeah no we just do the whole thing again it's like don't you want to keep that it's like no (laughs) so it did get frustrating lonely and you know it was despairing at some points
0: (laughs) but still amazing yeah Yeah. but uh, yeah
1: absolutely you get over all that you know and uh but i guess you know i i learned a lot about the disciplines of working in, in music you're working as a musician as an artist and yeah. that it's um <laughs> i used to say <laughs> this you know, um, to my son harry do you, I mean music isn't fun yeah. <laughs> mean, it's like about
0: really nailing things and and kind of achieving an objective you know it's a shame that musicians today won't really get a studio experience anymore because it's all in the box with computers isn't yeah, it? it's a shame it no is. one has that sort of yeah i know standing on your own in the studio too singing yeah was Miserable. at the time yeah you know, oh no but yeah. i mean you wouldn't have changed that for the world would no, you no 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 absolutely and i was very aware
1: towards the sort of mid eighties, you know, we were working in studios like ocean way in the States, wow. and in LA and hit factory, in New York and stuff. And that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, and to work in those studios was a thrill and I loved it. You know, the, the, during the 80s, you know, the tour, we didn't do that much touring, but the live thing I found pretty really stressful, you know. But yeah. working in the studios, I adored it. The the, um, the atmosphere and the concentration on the detail.
0: Stu- the different studios as well, was there a different sort of working ethic and totally. atmosphere? In that? Was the Americans more softer than the British, was it? I've heard that before.
1: Yeah. Um, no, softer. They, they were more professional. Oh, okay. <laughs> I,
0: think, I mean, I say that
1: Abbey Road was super professional in this sort of BBC kind of way, in that everything worked and they found innovative solutions, you know. Yeah. But uh, I can remember doing work in the Hit Factory in uh, in New York City. And this was when I did my solo album after Wang Chung. And we were in there during the day. Uh, and when we left at sort of like nine in the evening, they broke the studio down and another band came in and recorded from like 10 till mm. six or something the following morning. And when we came back in at sort of 10 the next morning, the, the whole studio almost down to the book and the page it was open at sort of thing was back. <laughs> Where it was before, <laughs> do you know I mean? So that you... Remarkable the, the the way the engineers and the tape ops were are they, disciplined Are they, are they, are
0: they quite I mean. experimental in the States as well, like in Abbey Less Road. experimental. Less experimental, say, yes. yeah. Yeah. So it's
1: much more professionalised, you know, much more right. kind of... Uh, Uniformed to a degree. Yeah. You, you get a good... It sort of reflects in the music in a way, you know. Yeah. Over here... It's geared up, sort of, to get that sort of experimental, surprising. We never thought that would work, but it, but it does. You know, <laughs> by combining this and that, Let's and plug that in, yeah. and somebody was, you know, playing a saw backwards or something. You know, it's you know, whereas in the states, it's it's more kind of no. This is how you do that. You know, we need an excellent microphone, gold plated. Connectors into the desk, and you know, and uh, this tape machine, and Dolby <laughs> S, or what we were using at the time, and um, you know, just incredible sound, you know. Yeah. But it's down to you as the musician to come up with the ideas, you know. You're not getting okay. prodded and sort of <laughs> punched by the engineers, <laughs> moved along, way. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah.
0: So, um, you had um, Dance All Days come off the, the album, yes. What was the inspiration <clears throat> behind the song originally? Do you remember where that came from, mm. or was it? <sighs> I don't, it wasn't inspired by a particular event and stuff, but it was a sort of
1: a mix of, uh, you know, Dance all Days was kind of remi- um, rhymed with Dolores Hayes. And Dolores <laughs> Hayes was a character in Nabokov's book Lolita, which right. I was reading at the time. And I think the whole dance hall thing, you know, when my dad, when I was young, you know, like, when his, like first. Learning guitar, sort of twelve, thirteen, fourteen. I used to play in his band, right? Um, in a highly underage sort of way, you know. Um, so the dance hall was maybe the Pavilion in Gillingham, where he used to play, and I used to be in his band, you know. <laughs> so there was some sort of nostalgic thing going on, and I think that's the emotion that people get from that song. And certainly at the time, they did the first video we did was with Derek Jarman. Wow! And uh, yeah, so yeah. Derek was—he uh, would make pop videos the stuff he liked uh, to finance his movies, you know. um, (laughs) And I felt very honoured, you know, to be (laughs) helping him to finance Caravaggio or whatever he was working on at the time. But, um, yeah, he he picked up on that nostalgic thing. So his video uses some Super 8 colour video film that his father took at the New York World Fair and stuff and video footage of him as a baby in Scotland. And um, so, you know, I think that, you know, when I, you and everyone we knew... Could believe doing sharing what was true, you know the sort of idealism, idealisation yeah. of the past is something in dancehall days. So it was definitely sort of uh, that nostalgic thing was going on musically. I always think that it was influenced by Little Feet and oh, their wow. their sort of shuffly kind of feel, you know. And uh, so that's that sort of four on the, you know strong backbeat. Yeah, but, but the rhythm is you know it's got that sort of yeah
0: thing. it's kind of loose and tight. At the yeah, same time. exactly. Yeah, and I
1: sort of wanted that. Uh, But working with drum machines, trying to get a drum machine to do that in the early (laughs) 80s was nigh on impossible. That... Was a very time-consuming <laughs> process, but we sort of came up with it, you know.
0: There's a wonderful. Um, I was on YouTube, and uh, there's yourself doing it on um, Top of the Pops. Yes, I think it's. I think it was December or January. I can't remember what it was, and yeah. you were you were just really enjoying yourself yeah. doing the song. Yeah, and it was amazing. It was a thrill to be on Top of the Pops. Was it? Um, on a side note, now about Top of the Pops, was it um, a fun experience? Because you see documentaries now, and they say it was very much sort of regimented, like you know, like you all dance and sing and throw balloons around. Was did you get that vibe when you were there? It was a bit like that, you know. There were these big cameras, you know sort of on the massive stands that were
1: moved around quite quickly. Yeah. And there were maybe 30 people in the audience. You know, you, when you watch Top of the Pops, it seems like it's this you know, 100, 200 people having a party, you know? Uh, and there was this kind of, you know, so there's probably, I guess, two stages. So one band setting up on one stage while the other's doing their thing. So it's, it's definitely geared up to the, uh, what's the requirements of, yeah. making a TV show, you know, so the audience would be like pushed in front of the stage. Do you know what I mean it's like okay, go, you know, and they, they, everyone would be dancing around. Do you know what I mean and then it would stop and they go okay, cut, next, and then push the audience back to the other stage, dance now, you know, regimented in that sense. But yes. but it was a thing. Do you know what I mean? And being at the BBC and yeah. being in that atmosphere and just that. Whole thing of you knew that you were going to be broadcast to the whole nation, as it were, you know, Uh, which is again is not something that happens
0: anymore. Really, it's it's lovely to see like there's you and Nick, and you're just looking at each other like we've done it. You you, you can see your eyes are huge. I'm
1: sure you were petrified. (laughs) 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 But I think you know the great thing about being in a band is that you get to share these experiences, you know, and so they become real to to you guys, sort of thing, you know, Uh, because it's very hard to communicate what it's like. Yeah. people who've never done it, you
0: know. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's just an institution that's... I, I miss it. I used to watch yeah. Shot the Pops, like, religiously, yeah. whether I hated what was on or not. Yeah.
1: <laughs> which one did, because a lot of it was just shy, wasn't it? You know? But you had to but, see. You know,
0: but, yeah, but there was
1: occasionally, or I suppose more than occasionally, there was stuff on that was great, you know, and sort of Bowie when he was on and... And Nirvana. Yeah, you? absolutely. I don't think I was watching it by then, but <laughs> it was, uh, yeah... I remember the Bowie appearances were thrilling, you know. Yeah, and uh, yeah. certain artists, you know,
0: you just really get into what they were doing, you know. I mean, you've you've had an amazing sort of like if you're a rock person, music mm. person, journey from Abbey Road to Bowie places. It's, mm. it's been an amazing journey for you, has not it?
1: It has. It really has. Um, yeah, and I think the whole thing of working in the states a lot as well was
0: a massive bonus. You Did know? you? Was it? Were you touring with the Cars for a while? Mm-hmm. And what? What so, were they like to work with? Were they great? You know, yeah. I mean, um, a great <clears> band, <throat> yeah, absolutely amazing yeah. band. I mean, they were
1: playing so. You know, Dance for Days was was that sort of hit, sort of top 40 hit, I suppose, and we had Don't Let Go as well. You know, anyway, Points on the Curve was a successful album and Geffen were pushing it, you know, and they got us this tour with the Cars, who were hugely successful at that point. Um, Heartbeat City was the album, I think, wasn't it? And, yeah. And uh, Drive was used on Live Aid. What a song. Yeah. <clears throat> and so they were playing sixty to 80,000 seaters Every night. Well, not every night, you know, but that was, you'd yeah. roll into town, you'd do that gig, you'd have the, maybe the day off next. But there were probably, you know, sort of four days playing, a couple of days off and a lot of gigs, you know. And because Wang Chung was, you know, MTV and stuff, it was like a household name. You know, those places were pretty packed when we wow. played our opening set, you know, because yeah. sometimes when the support band comes on, everyone's in the bar, aren't they? You know, That's and right, like, yeah. But no, these were pretty packed. And we were like young English people boys, sort of, you know, me, Nick and Darren, <clears throat> and a guy called Graham Pleath, who was our keyboard player at the time. And we really gave it everything we had. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And the crowd loved it, you know. And then when the cars came on, <clears throat> they had this... Uh, policy of not speaking to the audience, right? Okay, which was a sort of arty kind of, you know, Cars were Rico Cassick yeah, especially was very into the sort of art aspects of pop music, you know, post Andy Warhol sense of, you know, what is pop music and how do you deconstruct it? Yeah. Exactly right, yeah. <laughs> live. So the whole thing that they play a, a great song, people would go crazy in the audience, and they just turn their backs on the audience for like a few minutes, and then they turn back again and play the next song. And I got the sort of minimalism of that you know and um what are you supposed to say hello cleveland and all yeah. that stuff. how are you doing tonight and all Thanks that for rubbish. Coming. yeah so rick yeah. was not into doing all that you know i totally understand it but it progressively pissed off the audience through the night such wow. that by the end of it they thought wang chang were brilliant but you know the cars <laughs> didn't really enjoy it even though the cars were delivering a state-of-the-art show with lights and they had two single ears running in sync and yeah. stuff and it was like and it, Real state of the
0: art show, brilliant show they did, you know. It's amazing, like he was deconstructing it live almost and mm. trying to alienate his audience.
1: <laughs> Successfully I,
0: I saw Jeff Lynn a few years ago. Okay. Um, at the O2, and you were kind of waiting for Jeff to speak. Okay. And he did about five numbers, all amazing, and he mm. just went, Thanks very much, everyone went mental. That's all he had to say. He <laughs> <laughs> wasn't like he's yeah. rude, You just yeah. go on, say something, to Jeff. Yeah. Like, Come on, just say hello to us. Yeah. <laughs> you have to
1: you have to take that all into account, I think. <clears throat> but Rick was being very kind of you know, this is how I'm going to do it, you know. Yeah. And I mean, all power to him, you know. He didn't deviate from that for the whole tour,
0: I don't think. So, <laughs> so did the tour um <clears throat> help the band? Or you, yes. you were you already sort of doing well by that point? Yeah. I mean, we were very fortunate to have MTV. I yeah. Think.
1: Yeah. Uh, was it fortunate? Yes, it was. <laughs> because it was the first time, <clears throat> you know, in the States before that, you know, each city would have its own top radio stations. They'd all right. have a particular sound, uh, and you getting on those radio stations was tough. You know, and if you were sort of like Wang Chung in a sense, because of being signed to Geffen was a sort of LA band, yeah, or perceived to be that way in the states. So New York was always quite hostile to us. You know, <clears throat> not in a like, not, not like it would be here, but yeah. you know, it was. You know, we we would certainly weren't big on the East Coast in the same way we were on the West. You know, yeah. And um yeah, but MTV was the first time that the same product, if you like to use that awful word, was broadcast across the whole nation. So yeah. Everybody got the same thing. A sort of homogenization that is the beginning at the end of, you know, the music business as it was, do you know what I mean which was much yeah. more local and much more focused on uh, sort of individual quirks and
0: so do you, know? you notice like the <clears throat> rock cities, for instance, you know, they sort of oh, say you yeah. have certain rock cities that mm. Detroit being one but they they sort of you know it's all this mythology as a a person that hasn't lived it you know you you understand that that was how it was then
1: you know Detroit and you know we were very big I would say in Chicago Milwaukee wow um, those cities really embraced Wang Chung, and we were very successful in Canada as well. So there was something about that Northern American thing, you know. Yeah. Uh, the South, we didn't really play as, as Wang Chung. I remember we did a gig in Birmingham, Alabama. <laughs> I don't remember the gig much, but I remember being there and being pretty shocked at <laughs> <laughs> how it was down there. Do you know, you know even in, that's sort of in
0: the early eighties? You know, you did some work with—is it William Friedkin? Get yes. his name right. How yes. did that come about? Did he just contact you because he was a big fan? Yes, he was a big fan of Points on the Curve.
1: Right. And he was making a movie called To Live and Die in L.A. And I think working with a Hollywood-type composer and getting despondent about the results right. and was using weight off of Points on the Curve as a temp track, as they called it, you know. So he would they would shoot during the day and then he'd watch the rushes with that just playing on a loop <laughs> in the background, I think. <laughs> yeah. And decided that that's what he wanted the music to be. So he literally contacted us out of the blue, you know. I've often told the story of being, in, you know, I'd visiting this friend of mine who I hadn't really seen for years because I was a friend of his at University mm. and the phone rang in his flat in Bloomsbury yeah. because there were no mobiles in those days. Right. You know, and he picked it up and he went, Oh, it's for you. <laughs> and it was like, How <laughs> does he know I'm here? And it was a woman saying, You know, uh, Mr. William Freaking would like to speak to you in half an hour. Will you be at this number? And I was like, Okay. And, then, <laughs> and I wasn't really sure who Mr. William Freaking was. Do you know what I mean? I expect that. Billy is amazing person, you know. And we had this hour-long conversation where he was talking about the film and talking about music and movies and... Yeah. Uh, yeah, completely.
0: Did, got, he, did he have me. to say I'm William Friedman from The Exorcist? He did probably it, did, actually. Did he have to really. drop that? Yeah, I don't think he did say <laughs> that, but I think I found
1: out later sort of thing, you know. But he may well have done, yeah. He's not... He's I mean, you know, Billy has this... I called him Billy because he's a friend. He's and a friend, That's yeah. what I called him. Uh, he has this reputation, you know, being really difficult and fiery and even scary, you know, but he
0: was never less than charming and yeah. lovely to me, and it, you know. Um, oh. he, just a great guy. I wonder sometimes if that reputation helps him get his work done. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah absolutely. And I think in that business, God, you've got to be tough, man. Yeah. It's not like making pop records. <laughs> I mean,
0: it's, it's it's a fairly ruthless industry, the film industry. I mean, yeah. I mean the music industry can be terrible, but... Yeah, I think the film is, you know. I mean, the music industry is, yeah, but somehow it's
1: kind of understandably terrible when it's terrible. If you know, I mean, it's it's like there's a game to be played. If you want to play it, you've got a, yeah. a chance, assuming you're any good, you know. And if you don't want to play it, then you're not going to get anywhere, you know. Uh, but the movie business, you know, my two of my children are actors, and uh, I don't envy their experiences of being no. at the whim of people who haven't got a clue what they're doing, basically. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of bluffing. And there for the is best, a, yeah. just a massive hierarchy of people, you know, whereas in the music business, there's you and the songs you've written, and then there's a producer who you hopefully choose well, you know, and then a record label will hopefully get behind you and have Aren't a go at getting yeah. on the radio and stuff. That's how it was in the 80s. Anyway. It was yeah. relatively simple because the chains of ownership, as it were, were... Clearly defined, you know, the record companies owned everything, they put a lot of money into it, they needed to get the money back, you know. And if they made a profit for you, great. And if they didn't, well, they took the hit <laughs> for the loss, you know, which always seemed to be a fairly reasonable way of operating for an artist,
0: at least. Yeah, yeah. and then after that, Mosaic came out, didn't it? Yeah. And that was with is it Peter Wolf. Yeah, it? Peter Wolf produced it. And uh, he mm. did um, Starship, and yeah. obviously, everybody had Fun Time, it was the big track off that album. Yeah. What was the difference between the two albums? Did you notice a difference between your writing from Pointed curve to the mosaic yeah doing the movie soundtrack <clears throat> with freaking was uh
1: you know played right into my prog rock arty farty <laughs> sort of ideas <laughs> about making records you know and the album we released had to live and die in la on it the song obviously but in but it had four songs on side one and then instrumental stuff from the movie on side two which to me mirrored Bowie's albums, Low and Heroes, and I love that format of yeah. songs, instrumental, and so I, I was in heaven. But of course, it didn't really sell to live and die in LA, and it didn't have a top forty hit. You know, not pop top forty. You know, Billboard top forty. So uh, it was kind of like, you know, guys, you got to have a number one record. You know, otherwise, it's good night. You know? yeah. And uh, so that that was the game to be played. You know, and Peter Wolf was a guy who had hit records. You know, and the record companies believed in producers very much in those days to basically kick the bands <laughs> until yeah. they produced uh, another we built the city sort of thing which effectively peter did you know he took everybody a fun tonight which when i you know nick came up with the initial sort of ideas for it and i sort of wrote a, a song you know that had that chorus but sort of fleshed it all out and i wrote it as a sort of slightly hey jude ballad type yeah. thing you know and peter sort of I, said, I love that song, but we got to speed it up and make it everybody have fun tonight. And I go, no, Peter, you don't get it. It's meant to be ironic. It's meant to be you know, if only everybody could have fun tonight. And he's like, nah, 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 you know. And he just, you know, programmed it all up in the synth, in the synclavier. Did a great job, you know. And Peter is like irresistible. He's just forward momentum, enthusiastic, positive. You know a me bleating away in the corner about this or that he's kind of like, ah, whatever you know, and just carries on, doesn't seem to deflect him at all from the the objectives, you know, but Peter's a great musician as well, you know, so he was sensitive to you know eyes of the girl and the other really great tracks on um on mosaic, you know he facilitated great deal and we worked with great singers in in la this saida garrett was on that album yeah, who was wow. writing with michael jackson and in his band and uh amazing and we worked with brian maloof the engineer who was michael's engineer as well you know and so we were really in the sort of top echelons and uh yeah working in great studios it wasn't ocean way that we were in but it was one of those kind of so there was really a lot smart la places yeah. there was a lot
0: of <clears throat> pressure on that single and on the album there was, was there? yeah it was definitely
1: yeah make or break in a way and um it made, you know, it, did, it did. did what it was supposed to do, and uh, and then we were out on tour with Tina Turner. Wow, <laughs> and that that was an amazing tour to do, you know. That game. woman's amazing, isn't yeah, she?
0: Phenomenal. Was it every night could, she was just killing
1: yeah. it. I imagine. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. She used to arrive like literally, almost like get out of the limo, walk on the stage, do the show, get off the stage, get back in the limo, go back to the hotel. We never saw her apart from one evening where she watched our set, and afterwards was very lovely, and you know, so. That was all great, you know. But she was, uh, the thing I remember about her was doing Top of the Pops, actually. Right. One of the times, we did it twice, you know, so um, she she was on, basically. And it was at this time when Top of the Pops, there was always this tussle between the MU, who wanted the bands to play live, mm-hmm. and the record companies who wanted the bands to mime. <laughs> because, you know, if the bands were couldn't play, which quite often they
0: couldn't, <laughs> yeah, want you just want to
1: hear the record, you know. So, but they compromised by having the vocals live and the backing track recorded, you know. So I remember doing my vocal, you know, little voice and everything, you know. And then she was next up and did her I Can't Stand The Rain or whatever it was that she did. It was just mind-blowing hearing her singing in that room, which was almost like she didn't really need the mic. She just filled the room, filled the space with her presence and
0: filled the sound of her voice was just mind-blowing i saw um edwin Starr once okay and they said to me he doesn't use monitors because he blows (laughs) them up and i was like no way anyway stood at the front and he needed to blew my glasses out i know exactly what you mean that power you're like how does this come out of a person exactly
1: you know she's little you know it's like but uh, (laughs) but i used to watch her shows uh when we were on that tour and great you know and her band was great oh, I, I can know. imagine yeah and and a lot of english guys in that band i think at the time oh really and, uh, yeah and at first they were a bit when I mean, you're doing a support slot you know there's always that how much of the stage have you got do you know what I mean and to begin yeah. with we were like in a sort of like six inch strip at the front do you know what I mean? And, uh, <laughs> but they listened to us a couple of times and kind of like, oh, these guys are pretty good so they gave us a bit more room and we ended up you know being mates and being helpful, oh, so, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah, yeah.
0: And your video for um, everybody had fun tonight. Was Godly and Cream wasn't it? It was. And I mean, they're quite arty for their their time, wasn't they? They're well. Super, so super. It's sort, they're sort of yeah. to me, they're the jazz artists of the video world. Yeah, and very was, creative. Yeah, what was yeah. the experience like working with them? Were they were they fun? Were they? Uh, I yeah. think they were great party boys. That's what yeah, heard. <laughs> we didn't do any partying. I mean, I am very boring when it comes to all that sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah.
1: But uh, no, they were very focused. You know, and the, the video shoot was simple for me in the sense that it was like, you know, come dressed in black don't smile, sing the song and keep as still as you possibly can. And they filmed me like maybe eight times doing the song and then some poor person (laughs) had to cut it all together, you know, uh, so that you get that weird flickery thing. But our model, of course, was Peter Gabriel's Sledgehammer.
0: Yeah, when I was watching the video the other day, I thought it must be a huge sort of influence on it. Yeah, no, it definitely was, you know. And uh, I think we met Jan Sveikmaier, who made Sledgehammer
1: and did all those stop-motion videos. And he Was going to do something, but uh, didn't work out in the end. You know? Yeah, I think that was towards the end of like when we were doing Warmer Side of Cool and that very last album that we did for Geffen. Yeah,
0: yeah. So, when did you when you sort of first go solo? When was that? Um, well, Nick and I, you know, the, the process of making the last
1: album, Warmer Side of Cool, was you know, we'd done Everybody Have Fun Tonight and we sort of got this entirely new audience. Mm. Uh, a party people sort of thing you know so then it was kind of like okay so make another party record if, if,
0: you know yeah
1: and uh, and i think i was really pulling back towards now i want to make another to live and die in la record you know yeah so nick you know he's much more sensible than i am sort of thing <laughs> you know so he was trying to write sort of rock kind of stuff you know that were us in a certain way and i was writing whatever i thought of next which is what i tend to do you know and which is not Consistent at all, you know. (laughs) So we made this. Almost had a call. I I find it a very kind of uh, bumpy listen. You know, there is some great ideas on it, sort of, but it doesn't really hang together particularly well. Yeah. And Nick and I were sort of. uh, uh, It's a bit like the (laughs) pretentious, isn't it? It's a bit like the end of the Beatles, really. (laughs) We're not in that league, but uh, but it was similar. You know, we wouldn't actually have a massive row about things, you know. But there was a lot of like. I don't really like this sort of silent kind of like, you know, grudgingly letting yeah. Nick do his whatever, you know, thing, you know, and he would grudgingly listen to me, you know, <laughs> write a long outro for some song and have Vinnie Caliuta playing on drums and be <laughs> kind of, mm, it's okay. You I know, mean, you seem that. to have
0: a wonderful friendship with each other. It's, we do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's what, yeah. 40, 50 years old now. Yeah, isn't? yeah.
1: And I think we went through a phase, you know, where, well, that album was a difficult time and we needed some space away from each other. And I think bands, <clears> it's, it's a very interesting as a, a psychologist needs to get into writing about what is it that makes bands yeah, tick and not tick. <laughs> you know, uh, it's people say it's like a marriage, but it's
0: sort of worse. <laughs> <Really>. <laughs> when you were, when you were writing um, with Nick around, were you, were you writing with Nick in mind as opposed to your solo work where you can be more intros- introspective kind of thing?
1: I think, uh, I think in that sort of points on the curve time, especially, and, and, everybody have fun tonight i was definitely thinking about wang chung and what is it and writing tailoring what i wrote to a yeah. certain extent but i think we're to live and die in la and Warm side of cool I, I wasn't i was just thinking we need to do something amazing and that will come out of just being true to the next thing i write do you know what I mean rather than yeah. trying to sort of design it in a sense you know But uh, for whatever reasons, I wasn't writing particularly great (laughs) (laughs) at that time, or certainly not writing stuff that was catching people's imagination. And also I think the zeitgeist was changing uh, in the sense that, you know, the Warmore Side Call came out really on the cusp of Nirvana and Guns N' Roses being signed to... um, to Geffin and in, in a way it sort of felt like overnight almost the mm. 80s finished when Nevermind came out. One song. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and that was it, you know, so the choice is open to us then because Geffen sort of said, make another album, you know. Um, wow, he did. He was kind of yeah, cool about it. Yeah. Um, but Nick and I, I, we, well, I sometimes wonder what it would have been like if we could have sort of manned up and <laughs> actually sort of okay, let's focus. But we would have had to have faced either in the sort of grunge direction or in the sort of hip hop direction, which I think is maybe the way we'd have gone more sort of electronic and stuff. But for whatever reason, we we didn't do that. Because I was
0: listening to him, Taser Up, and that's quite a rock album. It is, yeah. 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 And I think that's, Nick and I, that's what we grew up with in a
1: sense. And that's what comes through, you know, comes through on Taser Up and on my solo albums there, I think in terms of a rock band, you know, with a rock drummer and a bass player and a, you know, a couple of guitar players and a keyboard player and... Yeah, sort of. That that still is what I like to listen to most. I think that's the most durable. Yeah, and what's lovely as well.
0: I was listening to your your. What I don't know, we pronounce the name um, orchestraography. Oh yeah, orchestography. Yeah, I yeah, got it right. Well, you did it right. very good. Yeah, I've yeah, been yeah. practicing that for days. Because <laughs> that's some um, um, classical and you, you know the Wang Chung together. So yeah. you're kind of blending those early influences that you liked and that yeah. together. And it's if people haven't heard this album, they need to get it. It's on Spotify. Yeah, I've played it endlessly. Oh cool. So it's just basically your songs with an orchestra, isn't it? It is. But yeah. it, it works so well. It does. It some of them so well. work great.
1: I think you know, uh, space junk and um, there's a song called overwhelming feeling which is a song on Taser Up, which is not a big Wang Chung hit. But uh, the people who did the orchestral album with us were very good, actually, at giving us a bit of licence to choose what we wanted to do you know as long as we did the hits obviously you know yeah and i feel overwhelming feeling on orchestography is far better than it is on so taser
0: up. did they approach you or did you approach them they approached
1: it? us yeah and wow. initially they just wanted to do i think dance for days and everybody have fun you know but we talked them into doing a whole album and uh, <laughs> they probably regret but uh, but it made it great fun you know in a sense you know hiring the orchestra for the day you know, get them to do 10 songs rather than just two, you know. So, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. great. Yeah. So
0: you're touring at the moment as well, aren't you? Planning to in August. Planning to in yeah, August, yeah. 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 So yeah. this is 2022, because yes. will listen to it four years from now. <laughs> I forget to put that in sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And so whereabouts are you touring? Are you local? Or?
1: Yeah, well, we've got some gigs uh, in the UK. We're doing these, um, it's called Let's Rock. Let's Rock. And uh, so it's an 80s kind of show. Uh, I think it is all oriented around the 80s. And um, we're doing one in Newport in in Gwent I think right. and then we're doing one up in Sunderland wow near where I'm not sure but <laughs> this
0: is a long drive <laughs> and if anybody wants to find out about you where's the best place to go That's a good question. Uh, The Let's Rock website, I would say, would probably be good,
1: you know, because our Wang Chung website is a mess and Nick and I never sort of (laughs) look at it. But I tend to post on my own sites. uh, So that's jackhughes.com and uh, and especially my Facebook, which is Jack Hughes, Jack Hughes Hughes official sort of thing. So just
0: a couple more questions. Mm. Um, If you were starting in this business today, what advice would you give a young musician?
1: Uh, I always remember reading a similar sort of question. I think it was Carly Simon doing the interview and she just said, learn your instrument. (laughs) And I thought, yeah, easy enough. But in a way, that's very good advice, you know. And I know you could advise, get a great suit, get a, you know, get, work out how to use social media and stuff. I don't know whether you can ever really work out how to do that. (laughs) I think ultimately, uh, you know, I've met and worked with lots of bands over the years. You yeah. Know? And, and lots of them are brilliant, you know, like really good. But what you've got to have is a song that connects with a, a mass of people. You know? Yeah. And that doesn't mean it's got to be some sort of football chanty crap thing. Do you know what I mean? It's just got to touch people in some way, you know? Yeah. And when you've got that, then everything else sort of falls into place, you know, and you can't get that by thinking, okay, I'm going to sit down and write it. You know, it's just going to come to you one day. <laughs> and, but so make sure you're ready for it, you know, and for that, uh, iPhone, Android phone, whatever, you know, make sure your voice recorder works and get used to singing into it, get used to jotting down musical ideas. I I think, you know, there are two halves of the business in a sense. There's the writer side and there's the performer side, you know. The performer side is great and some people are very drawn to that for me it's a treadmill because <laughs> you've just got to keep doing it and doing it and doing it so the writing side is where the money is I think everybody understands that yeah so uh, I would advise you know if you've got a feeling at all for writing songs and stuff then get doing that and, uh, and don't think that you're just going to be able to do it because you want to it's got to come out of something deep inside you and that's going to require quite a lot of application
0: and like I say just have the means with you to record any ideas that you get whenever you get them that's amazing, Jack. What can I say? Thank you so much for talking to me today. It's a great I've had, pleasure. I've had a wonderful time chatting to you. Good, it's been great. And um, so Jack's on tour. Go and check it out on the dates. Check it because obviously this could be four <laughs> years from now. <Luke. laughs> um, and yeah. check out the Wen Chung albums. They're all on Spotify, and there's lots of brilliant stuff. Thanks, and um, yeah, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thank you.
1: If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to subscribe and leave us a review.
0: Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free lifestyle to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads.